Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Before we begin, a couple notes. First, I'm doing another survey to find out what you want from the podcasts and how I can make them better. Last year, we heard you loud and clear on the news front and so have begun including a weekly news recap at the end of every Unconfirmed. This year, what would you like to see from Unchained and Unconfirmed? Please take a moment to fill out the survey to let us know what you'd like from our shows. The link is in the show notes, or you can just go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. And guess what? Crypto.com has offered our survey respondents a chance to win a metal MCO Visa card. And crypto will stake these cards indefinitely. 10 lucky winners will enjoy card benefits, including free Spotify, free Netflix, and 3% back on all spending. Plus, they'll earn extra interest on their crypto deposit and more. Thanks, Crypto.com. Again, take the survey now. SurveyMonkey.com slash r slash Unchained 2020. That's SurveyMonkey.com slash r slash Unchained 2020. And one other thing. Unchained is hiring. I'm looking for a remote editorial assistant to start working later this summer, as one of my staff is leaving to go to graduate school. This role handles numerous editorial tasks from booking to proofreading to social media and deals with everything from the show itself to the show notes to the newsletter. If you love crypto and have journalism experience, get in touch. I have a link to the job posting in the show notes, and the listing is also available on my site. There, it explains what you should send in and how. And now, here's time for the show. Thanks again. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Need cash but don't want to sell your crypto? Use Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and withdraw funds today, starting from only 5.9% APR. Create an account at nexo.io. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is Jeff Roberts, staff writer at Fortune and author of the recent Audible book, Kings of Crypto, Coinbase and the Coming Disruption of Finance. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on your recent book, which is first being released on audio. Can you give us an overview of what it's about? Yeah, I wanted to tell the story of crypto. There's other Bitcoin books out there, of course, but I wanted to make this accessible to a broader audience, people in finance, people in academia. So what it is, is a sort of a plain English narrative of uh, the story of Coinbase to tell the larger story of crypto and how Wall Street and Silicon Valley are coming closer together. And it also includes a lot of gossip about the early days of crypto and the infighting in the world of crypto, and also just how they pulled it off. To uh, my, th my thesis is Coinbase is basically becoming the crypto version of JP Morgan. They're going to be a bank one day, and I wanted to tell the evolution of how that came to be. And in the course of the evolution, what would you say were the biggest turning points? 
Um, I think the story of crypto, forgive me, I'm going to answer the question broadly at first. The larger story of crypto, I think, or its biggest challenge is to go from being sort of a subculture of tech people who are passionate about it to something that can be embraced by everyone. And I think they're getting there slowly. And I think Coinbase has played a big role in that. I think by trying to walk the legal line, they've helped to mainstream it. So that's, I think, uh, but in terms of specific turning points, you know, I think the funding rounds, obviously, and I think just their success in building a highly usable app. And, um, and also I think just sort of winning over enough mainstream people is, is what was one of the tipping points. Cause the other thing I discovered in reporting the book, a lot of people don't like Coinbase very much in terms of the old school crypto people. Cause they're like, you know, not your coins, not your keys. And I understand the position, but the thesis, I think, I try to make is that there's room enough for both camps. You know, if you're a, you know, hardcore stored only on your own wallet, that's fine. Nothing's stopping you. And I think Coinbase has, you know, bringing in millions more Bitcoin buyers has helped build an ecosystem so that crypto in general can flourish. And part of the reason people object to Coinbase holding people's keys and the fact that it goes against that, not your keys, not your coins ethos is that it really puts the onus of security on a centralized place, which makes that also an attractive honeypot for attackers. So in terms of security, which, you know, basically was pretty much of the utmost priority for Coinbase, how did that go for them? Um, I think a tidbit I reveal in my book, you know, because Coinbase likes to boast they've never been hacked. Um, that's uh, not actually true. In the early days, when there was just five of them, I think it was Charlie Lee and Brian and Fred Ursum and a couple other folks, uh, people, one of their outside vendors did, did get in and robbed their hot wallet to the tune of uh, $250,000. Can't remember how many Bitcoins it was at the time, but it was a lot. This was a long time ago, of course. This was like 2013 or 2014. But, you know, that's something I uncovered in the reporting so that, you know, Coinbase is very secure and has a good reputation, but they haven't been infallible, that's for sure. And another time when it seemed that Coinbase was at odds with the broader crypto community was during the Bitcoin block size debate. What is your take on how Coinbase handled that? Well, I think there's, uh, you know, I mean, I cited your uh, excellent article on the big blockers versus small blockers war of 2015 and 2016. And, you know, I mean, I confess I had some sympathy for Coinbase in that because, you know, this will probably not make me very popular, but I find a lot of the more ideological people in crypto sort of tribal. And, uh, you know, I, th I don't think Brian helped himself because I think he wrote a blog post saying you're immature and stuff. You don't win over people that way. Um, so I think there's sort of fault on both sides. But at the same time, you know, I think a lot of the crypto believers, they love crypto, they love Bitcoin, but can also shoot themselves a foot in the foot a little bit by making it such a sort of subculture and insiders group that if they keep up that attitude, crypto cannot go mainstream because it's just too unapproachable from a social and a technological point of view. So I do have some sympathy for, um, for Brian and the Coinbase crew on that one. And as you kind of alluded to earlier, Coinbase has had a, a tricky line to walk, which is that they've been trying to comply with regulation while also serving this broader crypto community, which does contain more libertarian elements and also has its origins in the cypherpunk movement. How would you say Coinbase has navig navigated those waters? 
Well, I mean, you know, crypto or I mean, Coinbase has also, you know, skirted regulatory lines a few times. Another thing I bring up in the book, too, is in the early days with um, when they uh, I thought this is sort of funny, actually, because Apple uh, didn't allow crypto trading on their apps once upon a time. So uh, uh, Brian and Fred Ursum decided to geofence Cupertino, which is sort of funny. So that meant that anyone in Cupertino would not be able to trade or buy and sell on the app. And of course, Cupertino is where Apple's quality check and engineers are. So that was sort of a clever hack. So meanwhile, everyone else was trading. As far as Apple could tell, people couldn't trade. And of course, they got caught and then got kicked out of the Apple store for a year. So that was sort of funny. And then more seriously, I think uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which is one of the few entities that will bank, you know, tech and crypto companies, they got cold feet after I think Fred Erson did a presentation explaining how Bitcoin could be used to skirt sanctions. He wasn't suggesting it. He was just describing it because, you know, Bitcoin, of course, is decentralized. But at that point, uh, Silicon Valley Bank tossed them cost Coinbase as a customer, which is, you know, is, is very serious. And, you know, because if you don't have a bank, it's hard to carry on. So, you know, so uh, Coinbase certainly made its missteps then. But since then, I think they've done a better job of sort of walking the line. And that raises another interesting point, though, by complying with U.S. regulations, which I think many in crypto correctly say are too onerous, that opened the door for Binance to start running circles around them. And I think that's was and is a very interesting story. The you know nimble ability of Binance to build what they want and operate the way they want to, and Coinbase became sort of bureaucratic as a result of having to comply with regulations and culturally too. I think they busted out that out of that a bit when they brought Balaji Srinivasan on, but um, I think you know yeah the the regulatory thing is a mixed blessing for them. It's helped them become mainstream, but it's also impeded their ability to innovate. Yeah, I, I actually want to discuss more about Binance in a moment. But before that, um, one of the other big issues that came up for them regulatory wise was the, <laughs> I almost want to call it a confrontation. I got, I mean, it was a confrontation because they had to go to court with the IRS. Can you describe what happened there and how Coinbase was able to handle that? Again, I have some sympathy for Coinbase on that one. You know, the I think the IRS, the U.S. government, has not done a very good job of building and helping to foster what I think is the future of finance. And when they went after Coinbase, it was simply a function of they were the easiest target. You know, I think Coinbase has been more compliant than most. But, yeah, I think it was, you know, we've all every crypto reporter is familiar with it and reported on it. They began subpoenaing them uh, because an IRS agent, uh, what they did is they began um, – auditing every American tax return and looking for how many people cited cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. And it was something like only 800, which was a big red flag. So then they went to the easiest target they could get hold of, which was was Coinbase, because Coinbase had all the KYC records and threatened to subpoena all of that. And I mean, that's sort of overkill, I think. And because it would have taken, you know, it would have been millions of documents to hand over and it would have been sort of a phishing expedition. So I think to Brian Armstrong and Coinbase's credit, they pushed back a lot, although, of course, they finally, I think, quietly capitulated and agreed to hand over the records of some of their biggest customers. But, you know, I'm, not, I'm really not sure what else they could have done. I mean, I know the same thing happened to Shapeshift. And, you know, I think a lot of people in crypto like to think they're beyond government control, and some are. But the reality is, if you're a business operating in the U.S., you really can't buck the IRS and the Treasury Department for too long. 
All right. In a moment, we'll discuss more about Coinbase's efforts to be on the forefront of digital currency while also being compliant. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you can now get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. Lastly, you could buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. Download the Crypto.com app today. Back to my conversation with Jeff Roberts. So again, I do want to talk about Binance, but one other question before we get there is that I feel like the entrance of Ethereum into the crypto space also was one of those moments when Coinbase was, um, you know, trying to figure out how it could be on the forefront of digital currency while also being uh, as compliant as possible. How did Coinbase handle, you know, wanting to um, get more cutting edge? Well, I think at the outset, not very well. You know, they were proceeding so cautiously, and I think they got a bit smug because they were in, a, you know, in in the leading position, and they were doing well in Bitcoin. But the, at some point, the uh, the well, I think as I report in the book, the Bitcoin environment turned kind of toxic between the big blockers and the small blockers and all that. And then um, when Fred Urson decided to go his own way and leave the company, Fred, of course, is Brian's co-founder. Um, a big reason was he was really excited about Ethereum and describing sort of the positivity and the energy and the good vibes in that community. And, of course, the amazing technology that Ethereum was. And Coinbase just kept dragging its feet and sticking with Bitcoin and puttering around. Um, of course, finally, they did get on the Ethereum, uh, you know, train but i think they were they were slow to do so but of course now you know finally they did add it and you know have helped contribute to building the ecosystem of it but i think the story is they were a little sort of slow off the blocks for that uh although they did eventually catch up and so in 2017 coinbase really became the main crypto on-ramp but especially later that year it began seeing a lot of its customers take their coins to Binance once they obtain them on Coinbase. And within five months of opening, Binance became the number one exchange in the world. At Coinbase, what was the internal reaction or reactions, maybe I should say, to the rise of Binance? Uh, again, I think they caught caught flat-footed on that. It was a function of being complacent uh, in 2017 with, you know, the sort of the Bitcoin boom. They had a lot of money. And I think as Olaf Carlson Wee told me, they were sitting around saying, how do we maximize our tax opportunities and things like that? While, you know, as I describe it in my book, you know, Coinbase was polishing up their old Ford, feeling really proud, whereas Binance was building a Porsche. And uh, I think they, you know, they they got beat. They, you know, eventually that's what led to them bringing in Balaji Srinivasan and shaking things up. And I think then and now there was a tension within Coinbase on the corporate side of let's, you know, you know, hang with the bankers and be as corporate as we can versus a lot of the coders and real believers who love crypto, who are watching what Binance was doing and watching the larger world of crypto. And were very frustrated at the pace of innovation and their and Coinbase's inability to add new assets. And that's what I think led this, you know, led them to bring um, Bellagio on because they saw 
uh, you know, they recognized they were getting beat badly by Binance and had to do something. Just add one more thing, Laura. Of course, Binance has got an edge that Coinbase doesn't have. I mean, uh, CZ likes hopping around from Malta to Hong Kong, or, you know, I've even heard he's going to try to set up shop in international waters on a boat. And, you know, they're, they're cowboys. They're playing fast and loose. And you can do that for a while. But if you're operating in a primarily American market, you simply can't. So, you know, I think, you know, you have to be fair to both parties. I think you can commend Binance's nimbleness and innovation, but also recognize that, you know, Coinbase, for a lot of reasons, couldn't operate that way. The Binance issue, though, did become a big flashpoint among the top executives in 2018, um, who were those executives and what sides were they taking and how did that uh, debate play out in the company? Um, well, it, you know, for lack of a better word, it led to civil war uh, because what you had is they brought on um, Asif Herji, who is a kind of, uh, you know, real corporate type, you know, background in conventional banking and telecoms and sort of made him, you know, the president in the face, you know, on the face of Coinbase for a while. And internally within Coinbase, a lot of the coders were resentful of Asif because, you know, he wasn't a crypto guy. He was a corporate suit in their eyes. And meanwhile, Balaji, who is, um, you know, a very mercurial individual, I think no one will dispute he's, he's a genius, but also several people at Coinbase described him as a brilliant asshole and saying he was the ultimate political infighter. So there's two tribes there. You had Balaji, who was leading the charge for new assets and understood crypto deeply so he could relate to the coders and the builders. And then Asif, meanwhile, was trying to, you know, make turn Coinbase into a mature corporation and it led to, you know, screaming matches. You know, so there's rumors that they got into a fist fight. That's not true, but there certainly was instances of them screaming at each other in the boardroom and, uh, you know, Balaji, you know, saying a lot of negative things about a SIF and ultimately forcing him out. And I think another part of the story too is who's running this company because Brian Armstrong, he's the founder, he's the CEO. I think he let these battles get a bit out of hand. He, finally, he reassumed asserted himself, but only after a lot of departures and a lot of bad blood. And how did that confrontation between the two of them end between Balaji and Asif? And during that time, I mean, you kind of mentioned that Brian reasserted himself. Like, how, how would you say he changed, too, as a leader through this period? Well, I mean, I think after the technical meltdowns in late 2017, you know, I know people like the venture capitalist Chris Dixon were getting a lot of emails from investors and others saying, fix this. And I think Balaji, or I'm sorry, Asif did do some good things to try to stabilize your tech stack and, you know, their accounting practices and make them run. Um, and then afterwards, you know, of course, Balaji came charging in and was like, F this, F that, we need to add assets. And, you know, people were leaving right and left. Uh, at this point, Brian Armstrong had, you know, a few of his trusted lieutenants. Olaf, who was their, you know, third employee, was long gone. Fred had left. And even um, Adam White, who went to uh, to bat, you know, so, you know, Brian, I think it, you know, I think the board started whispering in his ear and finally he reasserted himself. And then Asif Herji, he uh, overstepped his position because he basically saw himself as CEO and tried to get Brian to report to him on matters of product. 
And the reality is Brian owns the majority of the company. And finally, that was too much. And he uh, he pushed uh, Asif out. And Asif is quite bitter about Brian and his experience, in part because he said he wasn't even allowed to say goodbye to his staff. But, you know, for the bigger picture of Silicon Valley, this is how it goes all the time. You know, there's a lot of civil wars and infighting. And as companies grow quickly, this is par for the course. And at some point in all of this, I think Brian realized he had to kind of, you know, take a firmer hand on the ship. He Brian Armstrong doesn't like confrontation very much. So I think that's how that built up. But eventually he seems to have found his footing. Yeah. And one last quote on that is that Balaji also left, I think, pretty much like right when um, some portion of his options vested or something like that. Can you fill in the details on that? Oh, complete mercenary. He came on, signed a one-year contract. Uh, they forced, uh, you know, as part of the deal of him coming on, you know, Coinbase had to buy Earn.com, which people externally and internally have told me was a dog of the co- of a company since they're both, you know, Andreessen uh, Horowitz portfolio companies. It was a good way to kind of force them together and get an exit for Earn. Um, and the number cited, I think it was like 60 million or something. Um, people have told me that, you know, that was an exaggeration. They sort of, you know, juiced that number for Balaji's ego. Um, so that's, that's how that went down. And then of course, when, uh, after one year, that's when, uh, Blodgy's, you know, was, was going to be able to cash out. And, you know, most people at least stick around for a few more months for appearances, but right on the dot for one year, Blodgy pieced out and, you know, that was that. <laughs> well, let's talk about Coinbase today. Um, where do you feel like Coinbase is poised to go next? Where do you feel like they're headed? Um, some of the news this week is that after, you know, this period of the coronavirus, they've decided to become a remote first company. What do you think of that? And what else do you think is or should be top of mind for Coinbase? Well, I think like the coronavirus, I mean, like many people in crypto, for one reason or another, you know, I think the crypto people were uh, prescient and were recognized the danger economically and from a health point of view, way be way ahead of a lot of other people, including Balaji, who, of course, was one of, you know, the first to raise red flags about this. So the remote work thing, I don't think is actually that important or interesting. I mean, you know, companies like Kraken have been remote the whole time. And I think that's just the way the world's headed. And crypto is, you know, earlier to that than than most people. I think the more interesting story, though, is um, what Coinbase is going to become. Uh, you know, I heard reliable people telling me they didn't initially plan to do an IPO this year, of course, like so much else in the world. That's on ice for now. But I think also to Coinbase's credit, they're profitable. A lot of, you know, big Silicon Valley unicorns are, you know, a complete mess right now, losing money like you wouldn't believe. Coinbase is financially stable. So the big question is, how will they do an IPO? It's not going to be this year, but maybe it'll be next year. And this report in my book, um, you know, ironically, Brian Armstrong and Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan, who of course is one of the, uh, you know, has, you know, biggest enemies of Bitcoin and is pissed on it for years. Turns out they were actually having secret meetings in, uh, in 2018, you know, at JP Morgan's headquarters. So I can't wait to see what the IPO looks like. Uh, Fred Ursum has told me and others at Coinbase, you know, they all, 
have a passion for crypto. And if they just do a conventional stock listing, that will be sort of, I think, a little bit of a betrayal to the world of crypto and to their own ideals. So I think, you know, Coinbase, you know, I'm not really supposed to, as a reporter, I'm supposed to be neutral, but I'm kind of rooting for them to be bold. And when they do their listing to see half that become blockchain tokens and issue a, uh, you know, a Coinbase token like Binance's, a lot of that will depend on the regulatory situation, of course, but I think things are getting more favorable. So I think that's what we should be watching and, you know, just to see what the future of, you know, the stock exchange looks like and will one day, you know, Coinbase be offering, you know, sort of blockchain tokens for companies like Apple and Nike. I don't know. You know, it's, it's really interesting. All this is a couple of years away, but I think that's what the story is going to be. Yeah. And there's one other bit of news that kind of indicates that Coinbase will have a someone in their corner in at least the federal government, if not in an area directly related to securities. But Coinbase's former chief legal officer, Brian Brooks, will be coming, will be, will become acting. Okay. By the way, you guys, this word is spelled C-O-M-P-T-R-O-L-L-E-R. And I, checked the dictionary to see how this was pronounced. It's pronounced controller, which I never knew. My whole life I thought it was comptroller, but I like wanted to check it. You're supposed to pronounce it controller. So that was like my super bizarre learning yesterday. Um, but anyway, so he'll become acting controller of the currency. And um, like, why do you think that's significant? And, um, you know, how how could that affect crypto companies? I think it's a good thing, of course, because, uh, you know, Brian Brooks is a conventional lawyer and banker, but he got the crypto bug, too, during his time at Coinbase. And the more people in Washington who are able to bring a crypto-friendly attitude, you know, the quicker we're going to be able to, you know, the Americans are going to be able to harness the full potential of blockchain and crypto in the financial system, you know. But again, don't underestimate the power of the banks. You know, they can, you know, they can screw with companies like you wouldn't believe if the banking industry wants to slow down crypto as it has in the past, it will, you know, in the same way they've, you know, with the, the recent PPP program, the banks froze out companies like, you know, PayPal and other fintechs. So, you know, the, the banking lobby is so immensely powerful and they have immense hold over Congress. It's going to take time for more Brian Brooks figures to come in to that scene. But I think it's happening slowly. And especially if Jamie Dimon, as uh, I think Paul Vinia in the journal reported recently, has now taken on uh, JP Morgan Chase, I should say, has now taken on Coinbase as a banking client. I think we're getting there slowly. But as I report in the book, too, I mean, you know, Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. are like oil and water, cats and dogs, pick your metaphor. Um, and, you know, Washington is just bad at innovation. You know, they're bad at crypto style culture. It's just going to take time for the crypto industry to build up their lobbying clout in D.C. And it's not helped by the fact that crypto people do not like that game at all. They don't like schmoozing. They don't like Washington. But the reality is that's how it's going to have to go down. And slowly, very slowly, it's happening. Yeah. And one other thing about that office of the control of the currency is I think they also can determine whether or not the crypto companies still have to go state by state to get their money transmission licenses, which has been such a bane for so many of these crypto exchanges. And that's why even huge companies that are well-funded uh, like Coinbase still don't operate in all states. Um, all right. So what's next for your book? It came out on Audible. And can you tell people how to get it? And what's next after the audio version? 
Yeah. Well, thanks for the plug, Laura. Um, you know, it's, it's, you'll learn a lot about Coinbase and crypto, but also I like to think it's just a good read. You know, it's, it's nice and quick. You can listen to it in five or six hours. You'll learn a lot. You've got a lot of gossip. Um, it's out there right now. If you go to Amazon Audible and just Google Kings of Crypto, you know, it's there for download. And if you're not an audio person, um, I'm glad to say the book has also been published by Harvard Business Review. Um, and one fun tidbit on this is one of the protagonists of my book, Adam White, early Coinbase guy, uh, now, you know, prominent figure at Backed. He went to Harvard Business Review and tried to write about, or I'm sorry, he went to Harvard Business School and tried to write about Bitcoin when he was there and was discouraged right and left. So I think it's sort of fitting that, you know, the world has evolved such that now Harvard Business Review um, is, which is, you know, loosely tied to Harvard Business School, wants to publish a book on this. And long story short, the hardcover of Kings of Crypto will be published by Harvard Business Review. It's coming out in uh, December, January. So you can find that and pre-order it. Uh, of course, it'd be grateful. And um, I hope everyone likes the book. Great. Well, it's been so great having you on Unconfirmed. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Laura. Keep up your great work. It's, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Don't forget, next up is the news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to minimize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 8% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Before we begin, happy 10-year anniversary of Bitcoin Pizza Day. 10 years ago today, Laszlo Hanye paid 10,000 BTC for two Papa John's pizzas. At today's prices, he paid the equivalent of $90 million for those two pizzas. I hope they were really, 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 really good. First headline, did Satoshi move 40 BTC this week? Whale Alert tweeted that 40 BTC, worth $391,000, that were mined in the first month that the Bitcoin network was live, got moved this Wednesday. While there was some speculation that this could be anonymous Bitcoin creator Satoshi Nakamoto moving coins, a, a number of early Bitcoin blockchain analysts and sleuths have detected that there was one miner from the early days that had a distinct fingerprint every time it mined blocks. They believe that this miner was Satoshi, theorizing that perhaps Satoshi had optimized the client he, she, or they were running, creating that distinct fingerprint, but also because the coins mined with this pattern have never been moved. And the recently moved coins do not come from the sets that were mined under this pattern, meaning that they are likely being spent or moved by another early miner. In a Periscope chat with Lawson Baker, Nick Carter gave a theory that these coins are being moved by someone involved in the Craig Wright case, perhaps to prove that Craig Wright did not mine those coins. We shall see. I've included links in the show notes where you can read about this so-called Patoshi pattern, uh, these blog posts were written by Sergio Lerner, Bitmex, and others, and you can see why it is that they presume that these blocks were mined by Satoshi. And it's very clear uh, when you look at the 
the fingerprint and the plotting of these different blocks that the 40 BTC that were moved were not in the Potoshi pattern. Next headline, BlockFi employee gets SIM swapped, hacker gets customer data. This definitely deserves an exploding head emoji. A BlockFi employee must have been using 2FA via SMS because that employee was SIM swapped and then the hacker was able to use the hijacked phone number to get into BlockFi's systems. The hacker obtained confidential data such as names, dates of birth, postal addresses, and activity histories. However, the hacker did not access more sensitive data such as bank account details, social security and tax identification numbers, passport and driver's license numbers, or photo scans. This incident reminds me of when an engineering lead at BitGo got SIM swapped and lost more than $100,000 in cryptocurrency. People, people, if you are in any way, shape, or form involved in cryptocurrency, you absolutely should not use second factor authentication via your phone number for any service. What this means is, so for any service that you use in your personal or business life, if the extra security offered has the company text a code to your phone or call your phone, somebody can steal your number, click forgot password, on maybe your email or your company login, and they can get a code that is sent to them that lets them get into your account and lock you out. I wrote about this phenomenon back in 2016. It's 2020 now. Get a grip, people. (laughs) No to a pay using your phone number unless it's a Google Voice or Google Find number since those do not have customer service agents that can be tricked or bribed. And there is no excuse for every single crypto company out there not to be enforcing this rule on all their employees. Next headline, Backed has more than 70 custody clients and insurance. Backed with insurance broker Marsh is now offering its customers more than $500 million worth of insurance coverage. When factoring in the existing $125 million in coverage at Backed, that brings the total coverage to more than $600 million. In a blog post this week, Backed president Adam White said the firm has more than 70 clients for its custody services and the company has completed two types of exams, one for financial reporting conducted by KPMG and one for evaluating customer data protection practices conducted by PricewaterhouseCoopers. The company also says it is working toward the launch of its consumer app this summer. No word on a new CEO after Mike Blandina stepped down in April to take a job at JPMorgan Chase. Next headline, TBTC is over for now. An attempt to use Bitcoin as collateral in DeFi on Ethereum has failed, at least for the time being. As Matt Luongo described in a recent episode of Unchained, the system contained a single-use pause button that would enable users to withdraw funds. And on Monday, the TBTC team decided to push it. The bug was that the proof that the DAP was creating to show the Ethereum chain that a deposit on the Bitcoin blockchain had now been redeemed was incorrect. It was not actually proving that the BTC from the deposit had been sent to the correct redeemer address. Keep, which runs the TBTC protocol, is still pursuing some already planned audits and will be announcing how it plans to redeploy TBTC. Next headline. Steam blockchain attempts to confiscate some community members' tokens, but is blocked. The original Steam community's war with Tron, which recently acquired Steemit, continues. 
On Tuesday, the Tron-controlled steam hard-forked to create new steam, sort of like new coke, I guess, cutting out some former steam so-called witnesses who serve as block validators, as well as others who had created another anti-Tron fork of steam called Hive. If you're getting a little confused here, yes, it's because this is just splintering in all different kinds of directions, sort of like the Dow. The Steam blog post announced the move on Monday saying it would, quote, seize some user accounts that participated in criminal activities by actively contributing to the threat against the Steam blockchain and or to the theft of Steam holders' assets. 64 accounts would have their tokens seized for 23.6 million Steam tokens, which is about $5 million as of press time. However, someone known as Community321, who had control of a particular Steam wallet, was able to divert the tokens there to Bittrex in hopes that Bittrex could return those tokens to their original owners. Bittrex will be returning the coins to that wallet, though whoever is behind the Community321 wallet will have to declare their identity to Bittrex. Also, by the way, what I've described here so far isn't even the full extent of the fiasco. Justin Sun says he is also working with law enforcement to pursue the witnesses on the Hive fork. Next headline, A16Z on how crypto has grown exponentially across hype cycles. A16Z wrote up a great analysis on the growth of the crypto industry since the birth of Bitcoin. It says, quote, Anecdotally, out of the hundreds of conversations with crypto founders we've had, we often hear stories like, I heard about crypto in 2011, 2013, 2017, when the prices spiked and everyone was talking about it. At first, I thought it was just about money. But then I started reading white papers and blog posts, learned more about the potential of the technology, and eventually I fell in love with it. I would agree. I hear very similar stories when I do my interviews from all different kinds of founders, and probably some of you listeners also fall into that category. I myself do not, since I somehow got obsessed with it in 2015 when the price was at uh, one of uh, the lows. But anyway, uh, this post through clear and simple graphs lays out how price, social media mentions, and developer and startup activity have risen and fallen across each bubble. But over time, there have been increases in the annual in the compound annual growth rate of more than 200% for social media mentions and more than 50% for startup activity. It's worth taking a look at the post to get a sense of how these hype cycles result in long-term growth in the space. Fun bits. JK Rowling fits right in on crypto Twitter. It all started Friday night with JK Rowling replying to Coindesk writer Lee Quinn on Twitter. I don't understand Bitcoin. Please explain it to me. Okay, you guys. So in case you missed it, the full insanity of crypto Twitter was unleashed on the author of the Harry Potter series over the next few days with Vitalik Buterin, CZ, and many others of the crypto community, including myself, trying to explain it to JK Rowling. However, she later tweeted, quote, people are now explaining Bitcoin to me. And honestly, it's blah, blah, blah. Collectibles. My Little Pony, blah, blah, blah. Computers, got one of those. Blah, blah, blah. Crypto, sounds creepy. Blah, blah, blah. Understand the risk. I don't, though. Then she wrote, I know you mean to help, but full disclosure, I'm on my fourth very strong old-fashioned, and honestly, you might as well send me a scroll written in Sanskrit. 
By the way, fun fact, I did learn some Sanskrit back in the day. <laughs> Those of you may know, I used to be a yoga teacher. So yes, this is part of my history. Anyway, somewhere in this mess, an imposter JK Rowling account tweeted that it had bought Bitcoin. And Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong responded to the imposter account, inviting it to also buy non-Bitcoin coins, which I know some of you have your own special term for. So after a weekend of ferocious tweeting, the magic internet money crowd's love affair with Rowling was winding down, and she still seemed not to understand what Bitcoin was. The effort had failed. But then on Monday morning, Rowling tweeted this. This is getting silly. I'm not joining the Bitcoin community. It should be perfectly obvious by now that I've been trolling Bitcoin in the hope of boosting my significant Ethereum holdings. Which goes to so... Sorry, which goes to show she understands Bitcoin perfectly after all. All right. Well, thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Jeff and his book, Kings of Crypto, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. Don't forget to take the Unchained survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchanged 2020 to have your say in how we can improve the show. Again, you can have a chance to win a metal MCO Visa card that Crypto.com will stake indefinitely and that offers free Spotify, free Netflix, and 3% back on all spending, plus extra interest on your crypto deposit. For your chance to win, fill out the survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchanged 2020. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factual Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.